0: Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at Networks but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I am Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society. Our pilot this time is pure romantic comedy fun. I don't know about you, but I'm just not in the mood right now for some cynical cringe comedy. I'm just uh I'm too fragile. Yes, I'm just too fragile. I want the comfort of well-made rom-com, and I think this month's pilot delivers. It's called Life After Harley. That's Life After Harley by Randy Mayhem Singer. It's about a celebrity photographer who has some problems with her professional baseball player husband. First off, he's dead. And second, even dead. He's more alive than any of the other guys she's meeting. It's a multi-camera show, so if it were made, it would have the laughter of a studio audience. Now, that's a hard thing for us to recreate in these days of Zoom readings. So we left all the actors' microphones open throughout the read, as well as the microphones of a couple invited guests. So you'll hear some laughs, but not as many as it deserves. Uh, Obviously, it would have been ideal to have read this in front of a packed crowd at a theater, but we're all doing the best we can these days. You guys can hopefully provide more laughs at home. Randy Mayhem Singer is best known as the screenwriter of Mrs. Doubtfire. Maybe you've heard of it. She's been a prolific script doctor in features, and she's also created two television shows, Hudson Street and Jack and Jill. In recent years, she's been on the writing staffs of Mom, The Mad About You Reboot, and Why Women Kill. Uh, mrs doubtfire fans you're definitely going to want to listen to my interview with randy but so will anyone who wants to hear from a seasoned skilled practitioner of the art of the craft of screenwriting Uh, and the story of how mrs doubtfire ended up being her first produced credit is is pretty incredible Uh, it's a great interview so you'll definitely want to stick around after the read to listen to that if you want to see and not just hear uh, this read become a Max Fund member for just five dollars a month or more, but uh, you'll get access to the video, all of our bonus content from past years. Just go to maximumfund.org/join. Okay, our cast for this one: as Harley, Terrence Terrell from Be Positive; uh, as Lucy, Sunitha Mani from Glow and Save yourselves. People, check out uh, the movie. Save yourselves Uh, As Mick Adir Kalyan From Rules of Engagement And the upcoming show United States of Al Uh, As Zoe Ellen Wong From Glow As well As Ted Andy Ridings From The Other Two And Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt uh, Viraj Janija as Derek Hedges Viraj is from Pandora As the therapist and Joe the bartender Marcus Bishop-Wright from The Chappelle Show And as the woman in the therapist's office From Two Broke Girls and How I Met Your Mother Shuli Cowan So, here is Life After Harley After a brief message
1: Hey! I'm Bria Grant, an e-reader who loves spoilers and chocolate. And I'm Mallory O'Mara, a print book collector
2: who will murder you if you spoil a book for me.
1: And we're the hosts of Reading Glasses, a podcast designed to help you read better. Over the past few years, we've figured out why people read. Self-improvement, escapism, to distract ourselves from the world burning down, and why they don't. Not enough time, not knowing what to read, and being overwhelmed by the number on their TBR list. And we're here to help you with that. We will help you conquer your TBR pile, Oh, While well, probably adding a bunch of books to it. Reading glasses every week on MaximumFun.org.
0: This is Life After Harley, the Pilot, <clears throat> written by Randy Mayhem Singer. We're in a therapist's waiting suite. Lucy waits for her appointment. She overflows with trusting girl next door adorableness and tries to overcompensate with bravado. It rarely works. A cute guy, Ted, enters, pushes his doctor's button. Sits across from her. There's a beat.
3: It's always weird when there's someone else in here, isn't it? We're both probably wondering the same thing, right? What's wrong with him slash her? Oh, no, I meant meant slash the punctuation mark, not slash the verb (laughs) or the guy from Guns N' Roses. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Lucy smiles. His nervous rambling is actually a little charming.
2: This is my first time, actually.
3: Well, I'm only in therapy prophylactically because I'm a dentist. (laughs) We have the highest suicide rate of all professions. Plus, I went to Cornell, which has the highest suicide rate in the Ivy League. So, (laughs) prophylactically. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, please don't think just because I told you why I'm here that I'm expecting you to tell me. I didn't think that. Oh, I'm Ted, by the way.
2: Hi, Ted.
0: They both lean in to shake. And before Lucy can give her name, she begins to bawl loudly, (laughs) (laughs) unfemininely. Another beat and then Ted crosses to her and puts an arm around her, patting. Hey, hey,
4: hey,
0: it's okay, you? She grabs his shirt and blows her nose in it.
2: My husband was fatally hit in the head by a baseball.
3: Oh, man. What are the odds of that happening?
2: Well, he he was a pitcher for the Yankees. <laughs>
3: okay. <laughs> Better than most people.
2: <laughs> it's been a year and a half, and I just can't seem to get on with my life. I can't take off my wedding ring. I can't give things, I can't give his things away. And the idea of dating again? I, I, anytime a hot guy even talks to me... I burst into tears, (laughs) as you can see.
3: (laughs) Wait, wait, Uh, your husband was Harley Turpin?
4: I know!
3: (laughs) Oh man, that is awful!
2: (sighs) It wasn't awful before?
3: (laughs) No, no, I just, I just mean, uh, what a tragedy. That, that talent, that charisma.
2: He was People's Magazine's sexiest man alive. <laughs> yeah, well, runner up after Blake Shelton, but we don't talk about that.
3: I am so sorry. And you know what makes it even worse? Nobody ever remembers the runner up.
2: Good <laughs> <In a> morning.
3: <laughs>
2: he died. TMZ ran pictures of him with some redhead.
3: No kidding. Does Gwen Stefani know?
2: <laughs> Harley, not Blake.
3: Oh, right, right. Sorry.
2: God, I never got to confront him.
0: He untucks a fresh corner of his shirt and offers it. She blows.
2: So, oh, I don't know whether to miss him or hate him
3: or both.
2: You know what? I feel a lot better.
3: Lucy? Well, it looks like our time is up.
0: Lucy looks towards the therapist, who's always off camera, then back at Ted.
2: I'll see you next week.
3: I'll I'll hold this slot open for you.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Lucy exits the
0: waiting room and heads into therapy, and we fade out. We're in Act 1. Lucy and her bestie, Zoe, are having an early evening drink at Mick's bar. The bar owner, Mick, is in and out of the conversation as he tends to his business. Photos of Harley playing baseball line the walls. Mick was Harley's best friend and has secretly loved Lucy since he first laid eyes on her.
5: Mm. I just don't think you should date a guy you met in therapy.
2: In the waiting room. And he was there only, you know, only there prophylactically.
5: I just don't think you should date a guy who says prophylactically.
2: <laughs> Be happy for
1: her. He's a doctor.
5: A dentist is not a doctor. One deals with life and death. The other deals with cavities and tartar.
1: Tartar. Mm. Doesn't it seem weird they call it tartar? Like the sauce? Mm. (laughs) See, I get to ask him about stuff like that.
4: Yeah. Mm.
5: Prophylactic, tartar. Mm. I get hot just thinking of you two kids.
2: Then think of us tonight because I think it's the night.
5: After only... Eight dates? Uh, Are you sure you know him
2: well enough? (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure you're a guy? He
4: gives Zoe a
5: look.
0: They alternatingly annoy and amuse each other.
2: Mick, I know Harley was your best friend. And I know this has been hard for you in a whole different way than it's been hard for me. But I've got to move on with my life. And I can't do it without your support.
0: He looks at her with total affection. Of course she's right. You don't have to.
2: I just think it's time, Harley wasn't the last man I slept with.
0: Her cell phone rings. While Lucy talks into her cell, Zoe sees the shift in mixed mood and she's got his number as always.
1: It could have been you, you know.
0: What are you talking about?
1: That was just a test. We now resume our regular denial. <laughs> are
4: <you kidding> me? <laughs> uh,
1: of course I can do him. I'm I'm busy tonight, but I can do him tomorrow.
2: Yes, thank you.
0: She hangs up grinning. Yeah.
2: I don't
5: mean to be unsupportive, but could we please go back to sleeping with him and then maybe ease our way into doing him?
2: <laughs> I got the Rolling Stone gig. I'm shooting Derek Hedges for the cover. Whoa! You got it? <laughs> I got it! Oh my
1: God! Oh my God, Derek Hedges.
2: <laughs> no, you
1: can't. Come watch. Please. No. I'll get you the must-have bag for fall. Nope. Okay, what really happened between Pete and Ariana? Don't care. How you two can get Jen Garner's dimples. Uh, No, no, no. You know, but it's kind of amazing. They insert these microscopic little tacks. I'll call you tomorrow. (laughs)
0: Lucy kisses both Zoe and Mick and then exits. I thought for sure she'd
5: cave on the dimples.
1: Hey. It's my job to acquire information for the readers of Marie Claire.
5: Huh. I thought it was your job to acquire coffee for the assistant editor's assistant.
1: Mm-hmm. Tell her how you feel before she ends up with the dentist. Harley would understand. Bye! I'm late meeting a guy.
5: Zoe, nobody finds love
0: in Raya. As She heads for the exit.
1: I'm not looking for love. I'm looking for hot sex with men who punctuate and don't pose with dead fish.
5: (laughs) (laughs) What if they pose with living fish? Like in a fish tank.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we cut to Lucy's loft later that night. It's an awesome space, hip and exquisite. Cost a lot of baseball bucks. Lucy and Ted enter kissing, moving toward the sofa. Phil, the dog, immediately starts growling at Ted.
2: Phil, stop it.
0: I'm Ted.
2: No, 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 the dog. (laughs) Oh,
0: good. (laughs) They plop down on the couch, kissing again. Lucy stops.
2: You know what? Don't ask me why, but I need to be on the south end of the sofa.
0: No problemo. I can feel that. They switch sides and start kissing again. Lucy jumps up.
2: Wait, we need music, right?
0: We don't need music. He starts kissing her again. (laughs) Phil growls again. Lucy pops up again.
2: Mm, More wine. I I need wine.
0: She heads to the kitchen area. Ted follows.
2: Do do you want some wine? (laughs) Maybe I should give the dog some wine.
0: (laughs) As Ted starts kissing her neck, she abruptly pulls away.
2: So why do they call it tartar? You know, the stuff you get when you don't floss.
0: She pours herself some wine and heads back to the couch. Again, Ted follows.
3: Lucy, I have a feeling I know what the problem is here.
0: The dog snarls viciously at Ted,
3: baring his teeth. Besides the fact that your dog needs a cleaning.
2: He does? (laughs) Wait, you do?
3: Yeah. You're just not ready.
2: Yes, I am. I am. I have to be. What gives you the idea? I'm not ready.
3: She
0: downs the rest of her wine. She looks completely tense.
3: For starters, you haven't taken off your wedding ring.
0: Lucy looks at her wedding ring on her finger. She stares at it.
2: Yeah. Oh God. You're, you're right. (laughs) And it's time I did.
0: She slowly slides the ring off, puts it in a bowl on the table. She grabs Ted, pulls him into a kiss. Now they're getting somewhere. Ted's hand moves into her sweater.
6: Excuse me, what the hell do you think you're doing?
0: Lucy turns. Harley is standing behind the couch and no one can see him except Lucy and the dog.
3: Ah! Lucy springs up from the couch. Finally, you are one hard girl to get a hold of. I'm sorry, uh, are my hands cold? Oh
2: my God.
0: The dog starts going nuts, barking, tail wagging like crazy.
6: Hey, buddy. Miss you, too. Yes, I did, you big, goofy, goofy, you big, wavy, wavy, wavy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Phil is jumping up and down. Lucy is staring, uncomprehending. Are you okay? Are you still
2: here? Uh, You you don't see him? See who? My husband. Right there.
3: Harley mugs. Ted doesn't see him. Are you okay? Maybe we should, uh, maybe you should lie down.
2: Lie down. Yes.
6: Yeah. Come on. I come back from the dead and this is how you say hello? No, welcome home. How was your trip? What's it like being <laughs> on the other side? Can you really talk to a Hollywood medium or is he just making all the crap up? Come on. <laughs> As
0: Lucy heads towards the bedroom.
2: It's just stress. I went too fast. That's all. Nick was right. It, it was way too soon to start dating again.
3: Damn right about that. Do you want me to call your therapist? But Lucy is out of the room.
0: Harley picks up Ted's jacket off the couch and holds it open for him to put on. I'll take it from here, pal. From Ted's POV, the jacket is moving on its own, hovering in midair. (laughs) Harley throws the jacket onto Ted's shoulders. Ted exits, freaking out. Harley follows Lucy into the bedroom. Lucy is distraught, pacing, talking to herself. Harley watches a beat, smiling affectionately.
2: Okay, get a hold of yourself. It's just your imagination. That's not Harley out there.
6: Well, no, because now I'm in here.
0: She (laughs) spins around and sees Harley. Ah! Again, he's delighted with her reaction.
6: You have no idea how hard I've been trying to get your attention. Opening doors, closing drawers, blowing in your ear, moving keys, (laughs) blowing all your keys, and I'm just trying (laughs) to get in there. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Kind
7: of hard. I knew that wasn't... (laughs)
2: Wait, no, this is... Absurd. This isn't happening. Then you take off your ring and bam,
6: here I am.
0: Phil comes running in now, barking and wagging in absolute dog worship of his master.
6: Phil, lie down and be quiet.
0: Phil obeys. Ah. His tail is still flopping gently against the floor. Lucy is agog. Harley realizes what he has to do.
6: Now shake your belly, boy. Yeah, show me your belly full of jelly. Show me the belly.
0: <laughs> Phil rolls onto his back and gyrates on the floor.
2: But if Phil can see you...
6: Baby, I'm here. I've, uh, I've been here all along. I was here the night you cried yourself to sleep. I was here the day you fired Ruby for washing the sheets because you wanted to keep my smell on it. I was there the day you gave my dog away for free. Then felt guilty and had to pay $500 back to get him back. And I was here the night you and Zoe got out the Ouija board. And to answer your question, no, I was not attracted to a reporter from ESPN with the weird boot job.
2: <laughs> oh my god
6: by the way i think you owe ruby an apology the sheets were getting kind of gamey lucy
0: stares at him
2: harley
6: you look great girl
2: it's really you
6: okay baby That's, i got time to like sit here with you so
2: you're, you're really you're
6: really here <laughs> although i would like to catch the stillers in a half an hour
0: Finally, a huge, believing grin spreads across Lucy's face. She moves toward him, her hand reaching out to touch him.
2: (laughs) This is a miracle. Oh, this is crazy. Oh my God, this is wonderful. Oh my, God, Harley.
0: Man,
6: it's good to see that look on your face again, Betty.
0: And then she stops dead in her tracks.
2: Who the hell was the redhead in The Enquirer? This look, not so much. You cheated on me, didn't you?
0: And she storms out, slamming the door. We follow Harley into the living room area. Lucy is almost at the front door.
6: Why do you always do that? Why do you ask a question and then slam the door in my face before I can answer it?
0: Lucy exits, slamming the front door on her way out. God, I miss you. <laughs> and we cut to Mick's bar later that night. It's busy. Mick looks up to see Lucy come barreling in, visibly upset. Lucy. What's wrong?
2: What's wrong? Oh, you won't even believe how many things are wrong.
0: Look, it's
5: like I said, maybe he just wasn't the right guy. Wait, did he he hurt you? Yes,
2: he hurt me. I never should have married him.
5: You married him in the past
2: four hours? (laughs) I knew he was cheating on me.
5: Married and cheating all since happy hour? What kind of animal is this guy?
2: (laughs) A dog. That's what kind. And I guess once a dog, always a dog. Even if he says you're the first and last woman he's ever loved. Even if he stands on the pitcher's mound at Yankee Stadium and tells 50,000 people he won't throw the ball unless you say you'll marry him, still a dog.
5: You're talking about Harley.
2: Look, I know this sounds crazy, but. Harley's back, Uh-huh. and he's in the loft.
0: Nope, not in the loft.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly,
0: Harley is standing right behind Mick. Ah! People are starting to stare.
2: Oh, great. You're portable.
5: Lucy, calm down. You're scaring the customers, and they're drunk.
2: <laughs> right beside you.
5: Of course he's beside me, Lucy. He's been beside me since kindergarten, and he always will
6: be. He's beside you too.
2: No, no, he moves around.
6: (laughs) Why is it that you always assume the worst? I was buying you a present. What are you talking about?
5: I'm talking about memories, keeping Harley with us. What are you talking about?
6: The redhead, she's my jewelry connection.
2: Your jewelry connection.
6: Mm -hmm. What jewelry connection? (laughs) Just look in the pocket, you know, the brown suede jacket. Good thing you haven't gave my clothes away.
2: But if that's true, why didn't you just poltergeist it to me or something?
6: <laughs> Ooh, okay. Now I'm lost. <laughs> I, I forgot about it. I was a little foggy, you know, with the being dead and
0: all. <laughs> Mick turns to the empty space where Lucy is staring, which means he's looking right at Harley and doesn't know it. Hey buddy.
6: Nice speech at the mor- memorial. I missed the hell out of you two, man.
0: But Mick doesn't see hey. or hear him. He turns back to Lucy, who is finally comprehending this miracle.
5: Sweetie, I I had no idea it was this bad. Hmm? Come on, let's go in my office and sit down. I'll get you a drink. Well,
0: maybe not a drink. (laughs) Harley. Lucy runs to Harley with outstretched arms.
6: Baby, baby, wait, wait, wait. I can't touch you.
0: She goes right through him. His clothes are just a part of his ghostliness and she falls with a thud onto the floor. Oh, geez! Living things. Lucy looks at him a beat.
2: You can't touch living things?
0: Harley shakes his head sadly. What? Mick looks at Joe, the bartender, to whom nothing ever seems strange, including Lucy's behavior.
3: He can't touch living things. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: i think you better straighten him out lucy looks at mick harley's right she gets up
2: <laughs> just kidding had you going the whole time didn't i well yeah thanks for everything you know i gotta go kiss kiss i i to i'm heading home But wait, Lucy-
0: Lucy cuts him off with a loud kiss on the cheek. Then we see Mick's POV as she exits alone, whispering as if to herself.
2: Do you just walk or can you fly? I have so many questions.
0: And she's gone. Mick picks up his phone and dials.
2: Hey, Zoe, it's
5: Mick. We've got to do something. Um, I think Lucy's officially lost it. Call me back.
0: And we fade out. End of act one. It's act two. We're in Lucy's bedroom a little later. Lucy and Harley are lying on the bed together. Lucy's wearing a beautiful new necklace that must have been hiding in Harley's jacket.
6: It kills me that I can't make love to you, Lucy. Well, not kills me, but you, you
0: get it.
2: It doesn't matter.
0: They stare into each other's eyes a beat. They might.
2: No, it doesn't. All that matters is you're here. And, you know, I think I must have sensed you. I think that's why I couldn't bring myself to. Have you been watching me the whole time? Uh,
6: No, not all the time. I tune out when you're vacuuming and flossing, cooking in hot and cold water. But baths and showers, I never miss.
2: So what's it like?
6: Oh, it's very erotic, especially when you moisturize.
2: No, I mean (laughs) being, you know.
6: Oh, it's, it's hard to explain. I'm here, but I'm not in a game. I'm stuck in a dugout.
2: <laughs> you mean there's no, like, white light? And, and what about that long tunnel with the dear departed loved ones waving you over to the other side? And how come I can see you, but Demi Moore couldn't see Patrick Swayze? And only Haley Joel Osment could see Bruce Willis? Wait, they both had unresolved issues, didn't they? Oh. They needed justice and redemption before they could cross. Oh, oh no, you don't have unresolved issues, do you? Because if, if you have unresolved issues and you don't resolve them, you'll be unhappy. But if you do resolve them, then you might leave me and cross over.
6: Well, we know I crossed over while you were talking.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, what about Heaven. What about God? Are there angels? Are there calories? (laughs) There better not be calories.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Honey, I don't have all the answers. I'm not Deepak Chopra. Although I enjoy saying Deepak Chopra. I wonder why that is. Deepak Chopra.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Lucy and Harley stare into each other's eyes. She gets under the covers, her phone chimes, and she looks. It's a text from Mick that reads, Lucy, I'm worried. Call me. She yawns and closes her eyes.
2: Mm, I missed you so much. I even missed the stuff I hated.
4: Deepak, Chopra.
2: Mm, stuff like that.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: she turns to face him, and we know that if she could, she'd burrow her head into his shoulder. She smiles, and we cut to the living room area the next morning. Harley's on the sofa watching a football game, Phil by his side. Lucy's next to him, munching popcorn, happy.
2: What should we do today? Go to the park? A movie? Dim sum?
0: Let's go to the gym and
6: hang out in a women's locker room. I've always wanted to do that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's something we could do together.
4: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, wait, what am I talking about? We should go to Brooklyn and see your folks and tell them that you're- and you saw what
6: happened with Nick. They'll have you committed.
2: <sighs> yeah, They never liked me, did they? They wanted you to marry a nice Catholic girl from Brooklyn, not the corn queen of DeKalb.
6: They loved you. They wanted you to, they thought you, like, tame me.
2: I did tame you.
0: Harley is staring at the TV again, his head slowly tilting to 45 degrees. Phil's head is doing the exact same thing. Close up on the TV, the camera is aimed at two cheerleaders' asses. I'm sorry, honey.
6: What? You're both dogs. What? I may be married, but I'm not dead. Okay, I may be dead, but I'm not blind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The doorbell chimes.
2: Oh no. What do I do?
0: There's always answering it.
2: Lucy! Lucy, it's us! us. Right. (laughs) What am I worried about?
6: She buzzes them in. Play dead, Phil. Come on. I'll do it with you.
0: Phil plays dead. Zoe and Mick enter.
1: Are you okay? Bruce, are you We've okay? been We've worried been sick. Sick. Why do you our call- calls? <laughs> what
2: is wrong with your dog? I'm fine. I'm fine. And everything's fine.
6: Now, chase your tail, boy.
0: Phil sh- shoots up from playing dead and starts circling in place. What is wrong with your dog?
1: <laughs> and why are you watching sports? What do you mean? I love sports. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You always said you were just pretending for Harley. <laughs> that is not <laughs> true.
5: <laughs> Uh-oh, there she goes again.
1: Oh, hey, is it the big shoot today? <gasps> oh, God, I completely forgot.
0: He looks at Harley, apologizing with her eyes.
2: Oh, God, should I try
6: and reschedule? Are you kidding me? no. Oh. It's about time you get back, back behind that
0: camera. The doorbell chimes. Zoe rushes to the intercom.
1: Who is it?
0: Derek catches here, the pop star. Oh.
5: He calls himself
1: the pop star. Hi, Derek. I'm the voluptuous assistant, Zoe. Derek, Derek, this is
2: Lucy. Uh, give me a minute, then come on up, okay?
3: Sure, love. Why
0: don't you send down the voluptuous assistant, Zoe? Zoe is out the door. Lucy turns to Mick with desperation.
2: Go, protect him.
0: After Mick leaves.
2: Oh, okay. Stay calm.
0: Change clothes. Wait, wait, wait,
6: wait. Derek Hutchins? The guy's a bigger hound than me. Well, when I was single.
0: As she exits into the bedroom.
2: Just please don't start. This is the biggest gig I've had since I put my career on hold to follow you around. What are you worried
6: about? I left you a lot of dope.
2: Uh, you also played <laughs> a lot of poker. It won't last forever. Besides, this is about my life, not yours. Ow. I'm sorry. That's not what I meant.
0: Nothing for 18 months.
6: Now she hears the wall, through the walls.
0: Lucy comes back out still dressing.
2: Harley, you have no reason to be jealous. I'm just taking his picture.
6: You were just taking my picture, and I got you into bed. It was two months later. It was two hours later.
2: <laughs> <Just the> hairs.
0: <laughs> She's all changed and looks fantastic. Oh, you are not wearing that.
6: What are you worried about? Those pants in that sweater, mostly that sweater.
0: She bends down to slip her shoes on in those
4: pants
2: (laughs) you're forgetting that i married you i stood before god 200 guests and 300 paparazzi and promised to be faithful until death do its part
0: he raises an eyebrow reminding her that death has parted them
2: (laughs) right well we won't take that literally
0: there's a knock at the door
2: coming i don't care how dead you are i'm your wife I love you. So
0: behave. She opens the door to find Derek Hedges, a young, threateningly sexy British rocker in tight retro jeans. Hello, love.
2: It's so great to meet you, Derek.
3: Likewise, I'm sure, beautiful.
6: <laughs> Accent's fake. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
6: like
3: from Rolling Stone, didn't tell me
6: you were gorgeous. The crotch is fake, too. These guys all stuff their socks in their pants. You know that, right?
2: You're so sweet. Come on into the studio.
0: He leads Derek into her studio, Harley and Phil following. Stay. She slams the door in Harley's face and we reset to the studio. Lucy and Derek enter. There are lights, backdrops, various stools and such, and a few props. So what's your concept, love? She realizes she has nothing planned and nothing set up.
2: Mmm, I'm picturing a kind of, uh, a stripped-down thing.
0: Brilliant. He starts unbuttoning his shirt. Oh, no! You tell him, babe! Harley is now behind Derek. Make your mind up, love, on or off? On!
2: Uh, off.
0: Derek takes off his shirt while Lucy sets up some lights. She turns around just as he reaches for his zipper.
2: Oh, not your pants.
6: <laughs> yeah, nobody want to see your sock.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: she registers his bare chest for the first time. She can't help but stare. Derek sits down on the stool.
3: How do you want me, love?
0: Hearing that, Harley knocks an umbrella light over in Derek's direction. Lucy goes to grab it and lands in Derek's lap. Nice move, you. Can I get a copy of this one? His breath tickles her and she giggles.
2: <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. you got to be kidding me. You're into him, aren't you? I am not.
4: <laughs> no, what?
2: I'm into you. I, I mean, I, I, I love your music. I'm, I'm so honored to be. No worries, love. Let's just get this shot. <sighs> Liar. Okay, fine. I'm into him. How could I not be? He's Derek Hedges, and I'm a hot-blooded woman who hasn't had sex in a year and a half.
3: Brilliant, Then today's your lucky day.
4: <laughs> Fine,
2: just
6: jump into bed with him.
2: I don't want to jump into bed.
6: No worries, we can do it right here. Then why are you acting like this?
2: I, this is how I make my living. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, look. You expect me to pay <laughs> oh,
2: shut, shut up, I'm not talking to you
3: Okay, this is bloody
0: weird <laughs> He starts buttoning <laughs> his shirt to go
2: Now look what you've done
0: Derek looks around, who is she talking to?
2: Okay, wait, please don't go Derek I I haven't gotten a one shot
0: Well then, let me You're fired He turns to the empty space where Harley was What the hell? Good luck, mate <laughs> Derek leaves Oops There's a beat and Lucy storms out of the studio And into the living room area
6: Come on baby Tomorrow your agent will get on the horn With his agent and then- That
2: job was important to me
0: She goes straight to the coffee table
6: There'll be better jobs Better outlets, bigger stars Go bigger- away,
2: I'm not talking to you Lucy, come on
0: She takes her wedding ring out of the bowl
2: I have a wedding ring and I'm not afraid to use it.
0: You don't know how that killed me.
6: That he could touch you and I can't touch you. I'm just sitting here.
0: We go close on Lucy as she slides the ring on and turns around. And when we go wide again, Harley is gone. We dissolve to the therapist's waiting suite. A mannered 70 something woman is waiting. And so is Ted the dentist. He looks a wreck. Lucy comes in.
3: Ted. How are you? My jacket is alive.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not wearing a jacket.
3: That's because it's locked in my basement closet. He sees Lucy's (laughs) jacket on her lap. (laughs) You heard me.
2: Ted, it wasn't your jacket. It was the ghost of my husband. He's haunting me.
0: Ted? Uh, Ted gratefully exits the the waiting room to go into therapy.
1: How wonderful. I wish my husband would haunt me. Trust me, you
2: don't. Being married to a ghost is not easy. First of all, you're only remembering the good things. You forget all the fights, distrust, the jealousy, the paparazzi. The papa. Oh, but I loved him so much and I missed him so terribly. How can I even think of wanting him to leave or ever falling in love with anyone else else? He's more alive dead than most guys are living. He's people's sexiest man alive, 2017.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Flake Shelton? Okay.
2: (laughs) Runner up. But you know, we don't talk about that. But I want babies. I want a family. I want someone to grow old with. I want a guy other people can see. Is that too much to ask? Not at all, dear. But no one's perfect, right? And when you think about it, what do you miss most about a person when they're gone anyway? I mean, what do you really miss? Howard had a very big spirit. His spirit is what I miss (laughs) the most.
0: Lucy has surprised herself with this revelation.
2: And if I have that back, then what am I really giving up?
0: The woman considers this we hear the therapist.
2: Lucy. You're very good. Better than Ted.
0: Lucy gets up and heads into therapy. And we cut to her loft later. She comes in, takes her ring off with dramatic flair. Nothing. She looks around.
2: Ollie, Ollie, oxen free.
0: Still nothing. She becomes more concerned. She looks harder. Harley? But he's not there. She's growing frantic. Harley? And Harley saunters out of the bathroom.
6: Calm down, I was just in the John. You can still use the bathroom?
2: No.
0: Just reminiscing. <laughs> <laughs> she smiles and they share an awkward moment.
2: My therapist doesn't think this is a healthy relationship.
6: You want me to go? For good?
2: Never. Never, ever, ever.
0: He's relieved.
2: But it's
6: not exactly working, is it?
0: She shakes her head.
2: I think I was just getting used to life without you. A little bit. Without even realizing it. And now you're back and... Well, you're the one who's changed.
6: Yeah. I used to be solid. Now I'm gas. <laughs>
2: oh, no, Your world never used to revolve around mine. It was always the other way around. You didn't
0: have to be that way. I didn't mind. The unspoken being, but now we have a problem.
2: How are we going to do this, Harley?
6: It's the beginning of a new season. Uh, 162 games, and we'll just play them, you know, one at a time.
2: I'll never find another guy like you. Close your eyes. But What?
6: Do you have to question everything?
0: She closes her eyes. I got my arms around you. She smiles, imagining. Harley looks at her longingly.
2: Mm, It's kind of like phone sex. Only without the phone or the sex. You're
0: the love of my life. She she looks at him adoringly.
2: Name me
6: one other guy who can love you definitively. hmm?
0: And we cut to mix bar. It's mix bar evening. Lucy is sitting at a table with Zoe and Harley. Mix at the bar serving drinks.
2: It's
1: okay. I'll get other gigs, bigger covers. True, true. Especially after they see what you do with Derek Hedges.
4: She
0: shoots Lucy a smile. Lucy lights up.
1: Call him at the Mercer to reschedule. Mm-hmm. He said you can shoot him there. And if you order room surface, I highly, highly recommend the chocolate marshmallow cake. Ugh.
0: Harley gets <gasps> up, covers his ears, and heads to the bar.
7: <laughs>
1: what did you do? I told him I'd sleep with him if he'd give you another chance. Oh, sorry, you didn't. Oh, I was gonna sleep with him anyway. <laughs>
0: L- Lucy kisses her, and then
1: how was it? That was a sock in his pants. Uh-huh. <laughs>
4: <laughs> at the bar,
0: at the bar, Harley is now sitting across from Mick. There's a game on the TV, and they both watch.
6: He's wide He's open. Get Drib- Drib- him the ball. The ball. Are you a, another,
4: another snack?
6: snack. No. Oh, no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they slam their fists on the bar simultaneously. Harley smiles sadly.
6: <sighs> what I wouldn't give.
0: Mick looks over at Lucy and Zoe, so Harley turns around too. a hunky guy is flirting with Lucy trying to join them.
6: He's not good enough for Mick. Not by a long shot.
0: Joe, the bartender, approaches Mick, drying a glass. He senses Mick's mood.
3: Everything okay, Mick?
5: I love Lucy.
0: Harley looks at Mick. His eyes go wide. Joe looks at the TV, thinking that Mick wants I Love Lucy, the show.
3: What? You don't want the game on?
0: Mick looks at Uh Joe.
5: No, no, it's 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 fine. Never mind.
0: And off Harley's expression, we fade out. That's the end of Act 2. We're in the tag in the therapist's waiting suite. Lucy's waiting, Harley's sitting next to her. He's checking out a gorgeous woman, Diane, sitting near them. I wonder what's wrong with her.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just because someone's in therapy doesn't mean there's something wrong with them.
6: Can I come in with
2: you? No, you are not coming in with me. Why not? Because it's private.
0: The woman moves farther away from Lucy and we hear the therapist. (laughs)
4: Diane.
0: Diane is relieved to go into her therapy appointment.
6: Diane looks interesting.
2: I'll go in with her.
0: Harley gets up.
2: You sit down.
0: Diane turns back and gives Lucy a look.
6: Either I'm going in with you or I'm going in with her. (laughs)
0: Lucy pulls her wedding ring out of her (laughs) purse at the ready. Try me. Harley sits back down. Diane goes into her session, shaking her head and the therapy therapist calls. Lucy. Now Lucy exits into therapy. Harley is left alone, but then Ted enters and sits down with his jacket in his lap. Harley lights up like a devil. And we fade out. End of show. Dead Pilot Society is supported this month in part by Libby. I am so excited about this sponsor. Libby is a free reading app created by Overdrive that lets you borrow ebooks and audiobooks from your library on your phone, your tablets, your Kindle, your computers. All you need is a valid library card from your library. I use Libby all the time. I usually have at least one audiobook and one ebook going on my phone at any given time. Right now, I'm listening to True Grit by Charles Portis, read by Donna Tart. Not only is Donna Tart an amazing writer, she's the perfect voice for this perfect book. Uh, and the ebook I've got right now is uh, The Big Goodbye by Sam Wasson. Which is about the making of Chinatown. Great for anyone interested in uh, film history or the history of Los Angeles. Um, even if you don't have a library card currently, you can read samples of any book you see. I've done this a lot. It's just its better than even just browsing. It's hard for us to browse in bookstores right now. Just download a bunch of samples, read a bunch, and then and then for God's sakes get a library card. Why don't you have a library card? So Libby works just like your physical library. You, you simply borrow the available books you want to read and then they return themselves automatically after your loan expires or you can renew them if no one else is waiting. Look, start reading with Libby now it's it's free you just need a library card go to meet.libbyapp.com to sign up so that's meet, M-E-E-T dot dot com meet.libbyapp.com
3: what are you waiting for Hey, you like movies? What about coming up with movie ideas over the course of an hour? Because that's what we do every week on Story Break, a writer's room podcast where three Hollywood professionals have an hour to come up with a pitch for a movie or TV show based off of totally zany prompts. Like that time we reimagined Star Wars based on our phones autocomplete. Luke Skywalker is a
0: family man, and it's Star Wars, but it's a good idea. (laughs) How about that time we broke the story of a bunch of Disney Channel original movies based solely on the title and the poster? Okay,
3: Sarah Hyland is a 50-foot woman. Let's just go with it, guys. Or the time we finally cracked the adobe photoshop feature film stamp tool is your woody and then the autofill oh, is the new buzz Lightyear. Like join <laughs> us as we have a good time at matching all the movies hollywood is too cowardly to make story break comes out every thursday on maximum fun i don't know why i'm using this voice now
0: i'm here with randy mayhem singer hi randy hi andrew um, so let's let's just start by talking about the pilot now how many years ago did you write this pilot
7: i am almost I am almost embarrassed to say but I still love it. Um it was 2007 or 2008. It was I know this before Facebook was really a thing. Because right. I had to uh take out some very old references for the for the dead pilots reading. Reference to to Friendster. Friendster, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um and uh some other things, yeah, that you know that I, were just so old. So yeah, it was a while ago. It was, um, it, was for, it was with Warner Brothers and it was for NBC.
0: Okay. And do you remember, now a lot of these questions you're gonna have to reach far back into your memory. <laughs> do you remember what the inspiration for it was?
7: You know, I uh, have just always loved stories about ghosts and in particular comedies and romantic comedies. I wrote an adaptation of the uh, of a remake of The Ghost and Mrs Muir for Fox that never that never got made. Um Sean Connery was briefly attached. Uh I wrote a remake of Topper for Disney with Steve Martin that has never gotten off the ground. Um a huge fan of Ghost and truly madly deeply is one of my Favorite movies of all time, um, so I kind of got the idea to, you know, to use that that idea of, you know, having trouble letting go uh, from a multicam comedic perspective. I thought of Will and Grace. I thought, well, they can't be together because she's straight and he's gay, but wouldn't it be fun to have two people who can't be together because he's dead? Right. So <laughs> right. um, it's the ultimate obstacle. Yeah, and I've also always felt like as we go into relationships after relationships end, we always have the ghosts of our past relationships in bed with us figuratively. So it just it just seemed like ripe, universally relatable material.
0: And it sounds to me like a lot of this may have been what was in your pitch when you when yes. you pitched it, do you remember?
7: Yeah, I mean I probably kind of talked about my love of the area. I don't remember the pitch. Um, I probably talked about the pilot story and the characters and, you know, why it would be fun if the dead guy was, as I said in the pilot, more alive, dead than most guys are living. (laughs) How that would be, what do you do? You know, the dead guy's more alive than most living guys. And, um, Yeah, and I I think I probably, I I, I did definitely have some, you know, some other episodes where it would go. I can't say that I remember them now. I do think one of them was Harley having to deal with how he feels about the guy that threw the line drive that killed him. So, um, and maybe, you know, using Lucy to get to him or something like that. I I don't know. But it was, I know it was a pretty easy sold in the room kind of a pitch. So I do remember that maybe because it just really spoke to me. I don't know.
0: Um, and so 2007, so
7: NBC at that time. So this is what I remember. And this may be, you know, that was a long time ago. Kevin, while I was writing it, Kevin Riley replaced, who did he replace? Zucker? Zucker.
0: Yes, I believe so.
7: Um, And by the time I turned it in, it it was a no multicams are getting made situation. It was The Office, you know, inspired. And here I was, I really felt like it was a classic Friends Will and Grace, you know, type of multicam. And that was what they were looking for when I pitched it. And, uh, but by the time they were making decisions, it was, it was just, they weren't, they just weren't doing it. They just weren't doing, there were no multicamps picked up that year.
0: It's a, it's a very common theme, both these things. It's (laughs) like a change in a regime change happens in between selling a pitch and shows getting picked up. That happens all the time, I wanted to talk yes. to people about what happened with their dead pilots, and then that thing of like writing a multicam when everyone's looking for single cam, or writing a single cam when suddenly everyone's back looking for multicams. You know that is just a very frequent story too, and you're really at the uh, mercy of whatever happens to have hit. You know, the office was the big story then, and you know, so that's what they were chasing. Whereas, you know, if it had been a couple years earlier.
7: Yeah, exactly. So do you remember I, who
0: who like actor wise you were thinking when when you sold it?
7: I mean, I have always had this weird I come from features and I've always had this habit of thinking of um uh, you know, the movie stars. Now they all do television, so now that's not so weird. But um, you know, you know, I I was I don't really. I think you know, I was thinking about young Meg Ryan. It already would have had to have been young Meg Ryan by that point. And, you know, Colin Farrell or Matt LeBlanc <laughs> or um, Ryan Reynolds, you know, those those types of people. Um, but I don't think I was thinking at the time network television names, because I just tend to not do that. And now you don't have to, because yeah. all- uh, I do also remember that when I pitched it to Eric Tannenbaum, who was my producing partner on it, I, I told him, I have this idea that it's a feature that I'm writing because it was a feature that I was writing. And uh, I told it to him and he, I barely got through. And he's like, no, that's a, that's a multi-cam sitcom. Let's do that. I think we had a blind deal. I think I had a blind deal with him and I remember saying to my attorney whatever happens with this I want to make sure that I that I retain the film rights. And for whatever reason that did not happen. <laughs> so it you know it's tied up with Warner Brothers forever and ever. I hope that I always hope that maybe you know multicams are back, there's all these streaming outlets something but I was going to write a a movie version of it and now it it it's too entangled with the rights, the the turnaround, the revisions, whatever with um with Warner Brothers, I know you didn't ask that, but I think that's something people should always keep in mind.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's tricky with sometimes you know, there are reversions, but sometimes things never revert, and it's it's
7: yeah uh, exactly.
0: Um, that you know so it, there is a high concept, and because um, there's a ghost. And and that concept of high concept is one of these thorny things where it seems like no one's ever, no network's ever saying we're really looking for high concept things. And then yet every now and then something high concept does make it through and sometimes is is really successful. A
7: good place. A good (laughs)
0: place. yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing where it's just like, I mean, how many afterlife scripts had been, I mean, we did a, net, a, a script for Dead Pilot Society that was very similar, actually it was sold the same year as The Good Place, but I've, I've read other pilots from years back that were about the afterlife or something, you know, high concept like that. And they often are rejected as being too high concept until suddenly there's a the good place. Um, yeah, so exactly. did, was that something that um, was, was something you worried about as you were going in? Like, is this too high concept or was it just like... You know, you have these precedents of very popular things like Ghost that you could point to as like...
7: Yeah, and I looked back at Morgan Mindy, you know, uh, and I can't remember, you know, what I thought was that made it cool. And and a lot of the features that I've worked on in my career have been high concept. And my favorite movies are usually high concept, like a little bit of magic, but everything else feels real, you know, like Splash or ghost or big so i felt like that was the kind of thing that made it not another will and grace or you know or another friends and i was careful there's one special effect there's a jacket moving and i probably would have happily cut that i think there could have been plenty of comedy just with an actor on set that only the audience and the other main character saw and it didn't have to be you know, filled with special effects in a single camera, you know, sort of way and single cameras hadn't really even done that yet at that time. So you're right. So I try not to, I mean, I thought that was what made it cool. I thought that was what made it <clears throat> maybe stand out.
0: Yeah. Wrong. <laughs>
7: no,
0: uh, um, You know, th- there is, if I remember the the movie, the ghost of Mrs. Muir, which is not does not hold up, by the way. It's but my memory of it is at the end they can only be together when she dies, right? That that's like where they're finally you know together I think she in grows, death.
7: when she grows old and dies, they're together. The and I'm glad you asked me that because it you just reminded me of a big part of my life after Harley pitch was he's there to help her move on with her life and she's there to help him move on with his death M- my vision was not that they would be together the season fina- the series finale would not be like ghost and mrs muir lucy dies and they you know they climb the ladder together it would have been more ghost it would have been more goodbye i'm cool now you're cool now i'll see you later i'll see ya. you know right. um so, yeah, I uh, you're right. And um, I forget so it's what sort of him.
0: It was going to be him sort of helping her to get over him and ultimately move on.
7: They would resolve what they both needed to to move on. <clears throat> yes, because where we meet her in the pilot, she's stuck. She's comparing everybody to him. She just, you know, she's trying to date and, and he doesn't. He's been trying to get her attention since he died and he's finally got it. So it was, you know, it was going to be that. And it, isn't, it is similar, you know, to a lot of romantic comedies where they can't be together, except they really can't be together. I think like, I think about like the classics, like Cheers, you know, they can be together. So that's harder in a way, but I, you know, I, I felt like it was a fun, it was a fun construct that they really can't, they can't touch. She can't have kids, you know, no one can see him. <laughs> So it's frustrating. It wouldn't be a very good plus one, right? (laughs) You know, and and there were no
0: plans for. So she can see him. The dog can see him, but there were no plans to make it that anyone else was able to.
7: No, you know, maybe I would have had them go to some kind of Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost kind of thing. (laughs) I don't know. And did
0: you think, I mean, what about Mick? So you've got this best friend who is in love with her. And was there a thought that that's, that that was ultimately the guy for her? Yeah.
7: Yeah. I think that, or at least that would have been a couple seasons. I think that would have been really fun to explore for Harley, you know, for Mick also with Mick, you know, knowing that something's not quite right with Lucy that involves Like when you date somebody that's still not over their ex, like it would have been that times 10. And, you know, you know it. It's like they're in the room with you. It's like they're in the bed with you. So, yeah, I I always love triangles. I'm a big sucker for, you know, every friend's triangle, (laughs) (laughs) every good, you know. uh, Who was it on Frasier that was in love with Niles? You know, I'm always a big sucker for that for the for the, the the character pining away, and the other character doesn't realize it.
0: Yeah, it always works. I mean, these it are things
7: that, you know, done right with great characters, and we all relate to it because we we we've all been both those people. So it yeah. gives us a chance to play out play that out how how we want it to. And I also love the idea of like, oh God, there's another. Speaking of ghosts, there was a movie called. Chances are with, um, Robert Downey Jr. And it was directed by a great director who we lost too soon. I want to say Emil Ardolino. Am I wrong?
0: That's isn't that the, the dirty dancing mm-hmm. director?
7: I may, I, you know what? i <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm not.
0: I may be wrong to, about that, but, but
7: um, Robert Downey Jr. dies and comes back and grows up and starts dating uh, Sybil Shepherd, who was his wife before he died. Their daughter, and he starts to—he didn't get the shot, you know, in in heaven that makes sure you—that makes certain that you forget. So he starts to remember that he was Sybil Shepherd's husband. Anyway. In that movie, Ryan O'Neill, and it was—he was really great in it. It's a really great old movie. Ryan O'Neill was always in love with Sybil Cyb- Shepherd, and he was um, Robert Downey Jr. before he died. He was his best friend. So there's also something about the the, the best friend, you know, quietly loving your person that's always just intrigued me, because why wouldn't they? If you're really good friends with somebody and you love somebody, they're going to maybe love them a little bit too. You know, and then you think about Love Actually and the guy with the (laughs) car. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: that's uh, such a classic best friend in love with, you know.
7: Exactly. And I just think that it's always fun to reinvent those dynamics and explore them, especially in multicam, because I think you know they have that you know oh, you, you, they have that universal feeling, and it's just fun to see where where else a new setting and new characters can take them.
0: Um, this is getting in the weeds, but I'm curious about the jobs you gave your your two leads because this is always something in in
4: mm-hmm.
0: you yeah. know, TV comedy that's always kind of tricky. So why a baseball player? Why a celebrity photographer? What were you? Do you remember um, the thought behind that?
7: A baseball player was because, again, he he was somebody to me, he had to be bigger than life and not just to her. I wanted him to be somebody bigger than life to everybody. Men wanted to be him. Women wanted to be with him um, and died young. And I liked, I don't know how I, and I don't know sports at all. Anytime I have to write anything to do with sports, I have to call a guy friend. That's very sexist. It could be a girlfriend. In my case, it just happens to be a guy that, I <laughs> um, I liked the idea that, that he, that he just died in an instant when he was hit in the head. I, so I liked that he, you know, he was on the cover of people. Um, So that sort of explains Harley. And it didn't really matter in death what his career was because he's not going to be doing it anymore. Um, So as far as Lucy, it was, you know, it's hard to remember, but I think it just came to me that that would have been how they would have met. Um, And I knew I wanted to sort of do a comedy scrimmage scene where she was taking someone's picture and he was jealous. Right. So it, it just kind of occurred to me that that's how they met was that she took his picture. Also, I wanted her to, I, you know, I didn't want it to be an office place comedy. I felt that would be too hard if she was going to a job and he was going, following her there. I like the idea that it kind of, it, it was set in that she worked, you know, for herself at home or took her camera places and it's creative and, um, I don't know. It just, it just felt like the way to do it. I knew I already had a lot to deal with, with a ghost and I didn't want to have coworkers and, you know, and, and complicate it that way. But I also knew I could bring stories into her life as a photographer. Right. And with him,
0: and with him, I guess it solved a problem, which is his death has to be in a comic key somehow. Right. Um,
7: not cancer. You, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it couldn't be tragic or upsetting. It had to be something that on some level we could kind of laugh at and, you know,
7: I, yeah. And I think it made, it made sense to me that it was hard for him to move on. You're alive on the, you know, you're, you're playing baseball, you're throwing your them all one minute and you're dead the next. So if we were to ever see that in a flashback or imagine it, it would have been really tough for him. So it's just, yeah. It just, it, yeah. I liked him having a little bit of celebrity. I guess there's a, there's also a little sort of Sam Malone to it. Now that yeah, it. I wondered.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's that's the the, the most yeah. famous baseball former baseball player, you know, character on a sitcom would be Sam Malone.
7: Yeah, and I remember thinking about other sports, but it seemed more tragic. Like if it was football, I, I thought of that whole concussion thing. I didn't want to go there. You know, it just it he just felt like a baseball player to me. So, yeah.
0: So, okay. So let's go back a bit um, even farther back and just talk about uh, well, Mrs. Doubtfire, but before, even before Mrs. Doubtfire, um, let's talk about just how you got to Mrs. Doubtfire.
7: I have a really uh, strange story and it still amazes me to this day. I uh, have a master's in journalism and I was I had really gotten far in 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 a radio career really quickly. I was in my early 20s and I was anchoring the news on KFI in Los Angeles in the number 2 market. I was doing afternoon drive news which <laughs> was lightning in a bottle. I I I it just things worked out and I just got there really fast and I really enjoyed it. But I had always been a movie fanatic. In my last radio job before that, which was at KMEL in San Francisco, I had asked them if I could review movies. And they, they, create, uh, they let me create a movie review segment. So, it was always, I just didn't really grow up knowing that people wrote them. <laughs> I grew up thinking writing was journalism or writing a book. I just, it didn't, you know, you're young. I knew that I could write. But you're
0: from um, Southern California, yeah. right?
7: I grew up uh, in Palisades, Verdes, which okay, is...
0: Okay, so you're you know, far from Hollywood. You you probably didn't know a ton of show business people.
7: In a weird way, although it's, you know, it's about an hour away with traffic now. Had I grown up in Westwood, yes, I would have known people wrote movies. My dad was in the toy business. Um, we were not connected to, to that. So I just loved them. I just loved movies, television, not so much yet. Um, so, I'd done this movie review in the Bay Area. I ended up with a job in LA. When I first moved to LA, before I was at KFI, I took a class at UCLA Extension. I, I don't know how I found it. I, I guess I got an actual catalog because there was no internet. And I took an introductory screenwriting course. And I stumbled into just the greatest writing teacher. He's passed away now. His name is Al Brenner. He was a guy from the theater, from Playhouse 90, uh, Dr. Kildare, Ben Casey. Um, he was very much a three act or a two act or a three act structure guy. He was very much from sort of the school of, of, um, uh, what's his name? (laughs) The other guy, the other, um, Sid Field or very much. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've talked about Al many times uh, speaking to classes and whatnot, and somehow I have ended up as one of Sid Field's former students, and I never was. I'm even on the book. <laughs> I, I never was his student. I was Al Brenner's student. Um, he had a class. It was UCLA Extension. It was Introduction to Screenwriting. At the end of 12 weeks, you had a beat sheet if you were lucky. And then he, he had a private workshop, which met in his house or another workshop member's house. And through that, you you wrote your first draft, and then we read it, and he gave notes, and we rewrote it. And so during that time, I wrote the script called a twenty-two cent romance, which was the price of postage. (laughs) (laughs) And one day, uh, Al called me, and he said, "Um, "UCLA is going to have this screenwriting award for uh, scripts written in the extension program, not UCLA." undergrad. And I want to submit your script. And by by the way, he was, this man was not one with compliments, but he talked me out of quitting the course three or four times. And when we did read my script, um, even with the, you know, writers playing the parts, people were laughing. They laughed for an hour and a half. It is to this day, the most fulfilling moment that i've ever had because up until that moment i honestly didn't know you know that it was something i could do and i didn't know that i was a comedy writer my first outline of 22 cent romance was a drama but as i started to like work it like opportunities for comedy started to occur to me and i started to write funny things in the treatment that people responded to and so by the time i had a draft it was a comedy so he submitted it um for this competition, which I knew nothing about until about, um, I don't know, a few weeks later, I got a call that I was a finalist and it was the Diane Thomas Screenwriting Award that was named after Diane Thomas because she wrote a script of great movie called Romancing the Stone Mm -hmm. in the UCLA Screenwriting Extension Program. So their idea was to help and honor writers who were kind of making a second career out of writing through UCLA extension, Diane Thomas was working at Mattel, like my dad, when she wrote Romancing the stone. So that was crazy. And, um, the judges, I still think to this day, nothing against anybody else's screenwriting awards, the judges for the Diane Thomas award back then were James Brooks, Robert Zemeckis, Kathleen Kennedy, Steven Spielberg, Michael Douglas, um, and others. That's insane. <laughs> they, were, they were the judges. They loved her. And and by the way, I don't know where it is, but if you can get a copy of Romancing the Stone, and I should say Diane Thomas was killed in a car accident yeah. during the filming of Jewel of the Nile, the sequel. But if you can get a copy of, of Romancing the Stone, her writing is incredible. It is incredible. I mean, just even the stage direction is something else. So. I, um, I found out I was a finalist, and then a few weeks later, they had a big banquet, and, and all the finalists were there, and I won first place, and Michael Douglas gave me the award. and Oh, I,
0: unbelievable. Yeah, this is the I, first thing you've ever written, right? I mean, this and,
7: is... And by the way, there's good and bad to that. Yeah. <laughs> Just like there's good and bad to your first movie that's produced being a big blockbuster. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I want that's to talk about pro- that. That's probably worse, to be honest. Right. <laughs> but... Um, It was just like, um, again, this is another really old reference, but you probably know it. The big picture. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Do you remember? Oh, my God. Remember his his answering machine when he was hot? Mm -hmm. That was my answering machine after that Diane Thomas Award. And it sold every studio four studios were bidding on it they were all trying to get an actor so they're at back that now it's like you've got to bring the actor right to sell, right. To sell the project they were getting actors so they would be the one i picked um i forget one of the studios was trying to get kevin costner orion pictures got dennis quaid in and they made him read the script i'm told they made him read the script in, in the office this was like back when You know, Hollywood was just very freewheeling with money and, you know, making games come true. Now I think you've just got to do so much more free work to get there. But um, so it sold to Orion Pictures with Dennis Quaid attached to play the guy. And it died in development hell. Um, I will say now in part because Orion was about to fall apart and declare bankruptcy. I also had a producer who was not very good attached, who was Dennis's uh, producing partner. I'm not gonna say her name, but to this day, the worst producer I've ever worked with. (laughs) Um, But I think that it mostly failed because um, the script was a female driven romantic comedy. Uh, The male part was juicy and good and fun and all kinds of great things or Dennis wouldn't have said yes. And he was very, you know, hot then for that, you know, that type of role. But uh, suddenly a male star was attached. So it, it was the now very predictable to me, push me, pull you of, well, how do, well, what's his story? And yeah.
0: You have to beef him up and then it's. I kind of had be- to,
7: to tr- I had to try and reinvent it and everything that inspired it. Um. You know, it was it was sort of it happened one night slash Moonstruck inspired. And if you imagine that you're telling Moonstruck not from Cher's point of view, but from Nick Cage's point of view, like Nick Cage had a great role and a great story. And so did the character Dennis was going to play. But it wasn't it didn't begin with an interruption in his status quo. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm so whatever it 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 died in development hell i like to think of it as frolicking in development heaven but it did it did um it it really got it, it everybody read it every time that i was out to lunch and i was introduced people knew it it was a, it was a there was an article the la times used to do best unproduced scripts and it was in there and then i wrote another spec um on the heels of that one, which also sold in a bidding war. So within a year, I had two feature spec that also didn't get made.
0: <laughs> um, but you probably were now, you'd been paid, like yeah, probably yeah. a good amount of money and you're now launched as a writer and people know who you
7: yeah, are. Yeah. I was at the time, I think 22 cent romance was starting to look pretty dead, but I was doing rewrites on the second one for touchstone, which was then a division of Disney. And I had been given a blind deal by Warner Brothers that I was working on. And then my agents called me about this book that um, Fox had called Alias Madam Doubtfire. And they were just, lo- they were looking for a writer. They had heard a lot of pitches. It still blows me away to this day that it that it even would have taken them any amount of time to find a take because to me, and I don't know what the other writers pitched. And for all I know, it was because I had a lot of heat, you know, Um, but to me, the, um, it's a children's book. It's very dark. It's, um, the timeline is, is quite different, but to me, like it it was a story about a guy that will do anything to be with his kids. I don't know what, I, I don't know what the other writers pitched, but I got hired to, to do that. And, um, so yeah, I, I left my job in radio, my, family was really worried about that. As soon as I sold the f- option, the first one, I, I left and they were, they're like, but you know, don't, you want to wait and see. And I felt like I can't, I've got to devote a hundred percent of my time to getting this off the ground. And um, so I didn't wait tables and write script after script. <laughs> and I didn't, you know, I wasn't a writer's assistant. I admired everybody who who just writes script after script while earning, you know, crappy money and finally gets, you know, an assignment or something. I, I didn't go, it didn't happen that way for me. And I'm pretty lucky, I think. I, I don't think you can follow my path. I, you know. Yeah. Do you? <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't think so. Not that exact no. path. No. Um, yeah.
0: For, for and the worthy writers that, listening, I don't think, uh, yeah, this isn't the one we're like, okay, now I know what to do. I'll just, uh, I'll become a radio news anchor and then I'll yeah. you know go to UCLA extension. and
7: Although I do think that uh, my um, structure foundation that I got from Al Brenner um, has a lot to do with, uh, had a lot to do with why 22 cent romance worked. The magic sauce, if you have a point of view or if you can turn a phrase, like that you have to figure out, you know, on your own, but knowing solid structure has really been the foundation of my career because so much of my feature career has been doing rewrites more than I, even to a degree that I regret um, because they would come to me and I would say, yes, because I was afraid, you know, to say no has been fixing scripts and fixing structural problems and, um, and things like that. So the other thing that's odd about my career is that shortly after Mrs. Dowfire, my attorney was good friends with the uh, then head of ABC. And I had a meeting with him about doing television. And back then, you know, feature writers just didn't do television. Yeah, there wasn't
0: much crossover.
7: But I just thought, I don't know. That sounds kind of fun. And that became the, the the show Hudson Street that Tony Danza starred in. And I was given his 22-episode commitment. I literally wrote... They gave it to me. So after they read the script, they didn't give it to me blindly. But... Once I wrote a TV pilot and I had Jimmy Burrows direct it, and I had Jimmy Burrows turn to me and go, "Are you? What do you think, Randy?" I was hooked <laughs> <laughs> on television because, as you know, um, that's not how features go. And, yeah. and what do you think of the set? And this is when we're casting. We'll see you there. What?
0: <laughs> I know. I mean, I miss this Doubtfire. Were you there during filming?
7: I was I was there as a guest for a couple of weeks, and I was really happy to be there. But Chris Columbus is a writer. He didn't, you know, he, I was not a, there on in any official capacity. I did do a, a last rewrite for Robin um, before Chris came on, I think, or maybe it was after. And um, that's a really funny story that Elizabeth Gabler loves to tell. I'll tell it really quickly. I was pregnant with my first son and Robin and I had met and we had an amazing meeting that I'll never forget at Mr. Chow. And I had all his notes and all his ideas and I was executing them, but I was due to give birth as I was finishing the draft. And I, uh, because of that, and there was no email then, Elizabeth Gabler, who was the executive on it, would, I was calling her and reading her my changes, literally over the phone. And in the middle of reading her a change, I would have a contraction and I would be like, oh, hold on. (laughs) And and she would say, because you start having them sometimes weeks before. And she would say, how many minutes apart is that? And she was not thinking of my child or my birth. She was thinking of the script and was it going to get done? And I left that script in a manila envelope on my doorstep for a messenger to come pick up on my way to the hospital. And the date on that draft is the date of my son's birthday. Wow. <laughs> so, amazing. you know, that you know how we all how we are with deadlines. Most writers are we, if you're like me, you use every minute you have. <laughs> right, right
0: that's a that's a pretty good deadline.
7: I often wonder, did I did did the baby wait till the end of the deadline, or did I somehow know how much time I had and use? It? I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, sorry about that tangent, but oh no, it's a good one. It's a fun story. So that's how my how my career started, and I, I as I mentioned, I did get stuck in what I kind of fondly look at as a golden hamster wheel of assignments and rewrites in the future world. And I went back and forth from that to creating in television. So I've done more of my own creating other than those two spec scripts that started my future career. I've done more of my original work in television. Um, uh,
0: so, yeah. So there was Hudson Street, which I gotta say to prepare for this, I, I found uh, <laughs> on YouTube, this like entertainment tonight segment about Hudson street. And that season was this incredible time capsule. Cause it was like that same season it was Caroline in the city and the single guy. And it was just like, I guess friends Richmond, and yeah. friends and ER had started the, the year before. And there were all the shows that were sort of chasing friends. And it was like Liz fair supernova was the music at the background of this entertainment tonight. So it was like this amazing nineties, <laughs> uh, moment. Um, did you do a whole season of that? Yeah, so you had yeah. the 22 commit seeds. Yeah. It, it, Absolute commitment.
7: It was tricky because it was. I would say the way a lot, and it got some great reviews. I, I would say the way people described it was "Cheers in a police station." He was a lock him up and throw away the keys reactionary cop. By the way, it bugs the crap out of me that it's not streaming anywhere. I don't understand that. Yeah. Same thing with Jack and Jill, which has some major stars. I. If you're listening, Warner Brothers Home Entertainment, I don't get it, but or a ABC. So Hudson Street was um, it. It was J- Jimmy Burrows directed the pilot. The problem with Hudson Street for me was it was sa- it was a nine o'clock Cheers like comedy, but it was sandwiched between Home Improvement and Roseanne, which <laughs> <it's not> a <laughs> terrible thing, but. And I think that there there was a chemistry issue between the two leads. Um it's,
0: it's Lori Laughlin, right?
7: Lori Loughlin, yes.
0: Loughlin. Laughlin, sorry. Yes. Who, yeah,
7: no, I know. <laughs> Everybody pronounces it that way, but uh I know because I worked with her. Yes, who's now famous for other things. Sure. Um
0: Maybe that's a reason why it might not be streaming.
7: Maybe. <laughs> but it was You know, it was an amazing experience and it did so much for my comedic chops to work in multicam because, you know, as a comedy writer in features, you you don't have that laboratory of of laughs. And we did two filmings, um, which some shows did back then On, on a Friday, we did one at five and one at eight. I don't, what would it have been? I don't remember. So a lot of times we would, um, not only would we try and punch up jokes uh, in between takes, a lot of times we would do really quick punch-ups between um, filmings and to hear, to, to see how just uh, inverting words or hitting a different word or go- taking a different approach altogether on the punchline would go from dead silence, as um, you know, yeah. Um, was, yeah, those
0: little technical things where you're often like, oh, you're just not ending on the laugh. Like you you went two words past where the laugh was and suddenly it's not a laugh because those things you learn when you're doing it, you're hearing your words read aloud every day for weeks and weeks and months and months.
7: You really do. There's nothing like it. And I feel really fortunate that I had that early in my career because, you know, I, and in a way it makes you a little more annoying, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jack and Jill was a little bit ahead of its time, people say, because we were we were trying to do sing, a, it was a one hour dramedy, but it definitely had some sharp, multicam pacing type laughs. And with a single camera, one hour show and without run throughs and without, you know, having to sort of spread yourself with the writing and the producing, I, it often felt like the set was where jokes went to die. It'd be like, no, (laughs) it was already shot. Right. Um, I would always have a writer there. If it wasn't me, it would be someone else. But that, that was really tricky. So it was, it, it, I still really like that show and I'm still really proud of it. Um, And I know we're kind of jumping ahead to it, but the WB at the time had a policy of every new season, they promoted one show with billboards, commercials, in movie theaters, and one show only. And my year, it was popular. And Jack and Jill kind of needed it more because it was the first WB show to have leads over the age of high school. I mean, uh, oh, past college, because I think Felicity was, uh, we were past that age. and And, um, but we did have a huge cult following. We had, people watched it in bars, Um fraternities and sororities and dorms had Jack and Jill watching parties when we to get our second year pickup. We sent camera crews out to those. They were we did not create them. And your cast was Um, amazing. So
0: the cast on that was
7: Oh my gosh. Amanda Pete, uh Ivan Sergey, Jamie Presley, Sarah Paulson, Justin Kirk, and Simon Rex. Yeah. And Sarah Paul, you know, why just for Sarah Paulson's sake, aren't they streaming it?
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you did another show with her, too, right? Did you do- I
7: did. I, it was shot, but not picked up. Um, it was called Real Life. It's on YouTube somewhere, I think. <laughs> Jack and Jill used to be on YouTube, but uh, I don't know who put it there. And Warner Brothers must have made them take it down. Jack and Jill is now on Vimeo. I won't say how. <laughs> not all of it. Whoever put it there still isn't done uploading it, but it <laughs> it's slightly <laughs> sped up, which annoys me. So I, I I know their voices are not quite that high. Um, so wait, what what did you ask me? Yeah, the <laughs> cast of Jack and Jill, and you know, it was it it didn't have the um the hospital. It didn't have the hospital background or the lawyer background or the you know, it was really just a soft you know, a soft hour and with comedy and there really hadn't been one. Now there has been one. So I yeah. liked it. it. was ahead of its time. Um, and so in between, so
0: while you're doing those shows, you're also still doing script doctoring work and features.
7: Yeah. Yeah. So I had this was Hudson street and then real life and then Jack and Jill. I sold quite a few pilots after Jack and Jill. I almost shot one, but it was unplugged a week before shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, And then I kind of really went back to features for a while. Um, A lot of family comedies. I wrote one spec, I think, that I didn't get anywhere with. Um, And I think that's my one big regret is that I was afraid to turn down assignments and rewrites that kept coming to me and write more original feature material. It was just hard for me. It was like a bird in the hand. And I also really, really like doing rewrites and, and production rewrites and script fixes. I find it's really satisfying to be told, we have, especially when they're already shooting or they've already started shooting, you can't change that set. We, you can't change this. We've already shot it. I find that really um, using that muscle. It's really satisfying to you know, whether there are constraints like that or not to just come in and, you know, solve and the puzzle. It. Yeah. And, and I've been successful at it and I often, you know, people say, you know when you do that are you worried about credit my rule of thumb is no i don't think about credit i don't change things just to change them my job is to make the people paying me happy and to feel like the script got moved forward sometimes that means getting credit and sometimes it doesn't but what it always means if you do it successfully is more work doing that right so Um, There's the
0: good and bad of that. So, when you do that, thinking back to those Al Brenner, you know, those classes, how much of that is just instinctual at this point? And how much are you really breaking things down and looking at at it uh, according to
7: a sort of structural uh, template? Yeah, what a great question. I used to make note cards for every scene. I do not do that anymore. Um, I'm ashamed to admit it. Really, I think that I give, I make the work harder on myself by not. Um, but as far as the, the main, you know, what are they called, retaining walls? You know, inciting incident, end of the first act, the middle of the second act, the end of the second act the blind spot is removed It's like, I still use some of Al's um, verbiage and it's funny. I call it the blind spot is removed. And I was just watching David Mamet's masterclass. And I know he was talking about the same moment and he called it something else, but I can't remember what. And I'm like, oh, that's the blind spot is <laughs> removed. Um, and real goal, false goal, you know, people call it want need, but those things have become I think, instinctual, even to the point where, when I watch a movie and I don't like it, I usually can answer in my mind, it's usually those things that are missing because I think they're not just, and the, and rules are made to be broken. And it, I believe you just have to know them. But I think what they are as, what they are is that they are storytelling satisfaction points in our DNA as, as audience members, as story enjoyers. They're in our DNA. We, they're, they're, it would be like sex without an orgasm, you know, not to have them or without foreplay or whatever. That's probably a really bad analogy, but that's the one that popped in my head. Um, so yes, I think both, it's, a, it's instinctual. When I'm, when I have a problem and I'm stuck, I often go right back to that. Um, And I think there are other, you know, books and methods that say the same thing in different ways. I refer people to save the cat a lot. I disagree slightly with some of the end of second act, third act ways they break things down. But I think if for somebody who's just starting out and can't take a class or whatever, or can't find a good teacher, there are some really good books. Do you agree?
0: I think Save the Cat is uh, is definitely helpful. It's very clear. Um, I remember when I was just starting out taking Robert McKee's class and finding it somewhat parallelizing because when you are analyzing Casablanca or Tender Mercies, those movies are so perfect and and amazing that it never for me it was just like what I was writing was just well it's just not as good as those <laughs> things and so it just felt like I, the standard was so high and that's somehow what I was getting rather than okay here's here's a clear kind of path and and the questions to ask so I find sometimes it's just I'll forget. About asking myself some very basic questions, but they are very helpful if you know what they are and you can just take a step back and go, okay, okay wait, does, does my character, you know, what does my character want, or some of the, you know, is it clear what they want, what they need? Those mm-hmm. those kinds of questions. Sometimes you can just uh, get caught up in so many the minutia of things and forget. No, no, no. It's not about that. It's not about what the character's job is or the the set or the thing. You know, it's it's a, there's a fundamental question where there's not something driving you forward in the script. And it also helps you see, like, for me, one of the most helpful ones is like, is this scene serving a purpose? Like, could I take this scene out? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And often you're just
7: like, oh, God, I've just been killing myself over this scene. I didn't realize it. it's because, I don't even need, I, it. I don't need yeah. the scene. David Mamet actually talks more than anything about that. If, you, if it doesn't, if it's not moving the story forward, take it out.
0: Yeah. And his whole That's- burn the first real, you know, thing, you know, it's, it's helpful. Sometimes you're like, I don't know, I can start here.
7: You know what's weird though is I some of some shows that I particularly like, or even movies that I particularly like, I will often notice there are scenes that I don't think are necessary, but yet I still really like them. And I but I don't think about it enough to go, well, wait, wait, maybe there's a piece of character here, but still, that's not moving it forward. If you know. So I've seen that. You got to be really good. It's got to be a really great scene if it's not necessary. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be hilarious. I think Jed Apatow does it too. Another really great masterclass. My pandemic thing has been Legos and masterclass. You <laughs> see the Statue of Liberty behind me. Oh ah, um, yes.
0: Oh, wow. That's Lego. That's amazing. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, podcast listeners. You can't see yeah. it, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's impressive.
7: That's um, right. That's right. So yeah, I, I, uh, I do think that the more you do it, the more instinctive it becomes, but it's good to go back to your toolbox. If something's not working, you know, that's your wrench. That's your screwdriver.
0: Yeah. I think that's what it is. I think these things are helpful to fix problems. They're not good starting places. I think people kind of look at, okay, here's the structure now I that I, here's the the beats that I have to hit. Now I'm going to try and think of things to match those beats. And you can't do that. You have to start sort of somewhere else, but then you (laughs) can look at, at at those structures and tools to fix the problems once you've started somewhere else. You
7: know, and that said, the thing I I never have taken a course or studied beyond being an audience member, television structure. So, I have found that some of what I've learned in feature structure applies to the beginning of a television pilot, but only if it's a premise pilot, you know. And I I often that i have gone way more on instinct with it just being a fan of television and knowing that i need to end some small part of the story in a pilot but be, but show the audience there are so many places to go that they want to come back for cuz they're you know there's they are different structurally and television can have what, five or six acts or two acts or you know yeah so I don't even know if there is there a save the cat for television like I don't even know. No,
0: I've never read one. I'm sure. I'm sure there is one. But I, but I also do think for so many of us who just grew up watching so much TV, a lot of it is just ingrained. It's just like this feels like we need a couple more beats. You just sort of know from having yeah. And, you know, there's a commercial. So you want all of that's changing too. I mean, you know, you used to have to have a premise that you felt like you could get 10 seasons out of. And now a lot of the streamers are very explicit. Like if we can get three seasons, we're happy. So that really changes everything because it doesn't have to be so open ended where you basically kind of do the same thing week after week. It can be much more of a stretched out movie. Kind
7: of- yeah, no, I consulted on a show uh, for CBS All Access year before last, which was th- uh, three stories in three different timelines, and, and they were 10 episodes. And what it really boiled down to was three features. Right. I thought, you know, that's really because they were in three different time periods and they didn't intersect. It, it was three features. Yeah. Um, With like the first two being the first act and then the next, whatever, you know, five being the second act and then whatever. I'm I'm bad at math.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So at a certain point you started going on staff of. of So, yeah,
7: I was working on uh, chipmunk's movie when I was asked to consult on Chuck, one of Chuck Lorre's shows. And I had not really thought about doing that, but, um, as someone, again, because I'm such a weird, my career was so weird that I went from writing movies to creating two, two shows and, and a, you know, and a third that I shot that didn't get on the air. So I never was, I never had that laboratory school of being a staff writer and watching other showrunners do it. I did not have that. And I was asked, you know, do I want to go work on Mom, which was Chuck Lorre's show. And at the time, I mean, he had in one building, he had Mom, who's, uh, Mom, who's um, Big Bang, Mike and Molly and Two and a Half Men. And I just wanted a sniff at that. I just wanted to see how you do, like, how do you do that? And how does he do it? And um, so I went and did that. And then I didn't do that again for, for a while. I was, uh, busy with a couple other things. And then I wrote a spec pilot which I still have which I'm still trying to put put together. And I had now been out of television technically since 2013 working for Chuck. And my sh- my last show ended in 2001. So I really felt like at that point, I guess it was 2018 when I worked with uh, Mark Cherry on Why Women Kill, and then um, Peter Tolan and Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser on Mad About You reboot. At that point, okay, I think I'm done with features. Features are, that's a whole other conversation. is <laughs> what's happening. I think I wanna permanently go back to TV. And it made sense for me to, I'm sorry if this the answer is too long-winded. I just felt like it made sense for me to be back in the room at a, a upper level, not running the show, um, just to get, you know, just to get back into it. And those were the two things that came along that appealed to me, were, that I felt right for. And, and I'm really glad I did it. I, I'm kind of glad I'm not doing it now in this Zoom world, like all of my <laughs> friends are. Yeah. Um, and right now, I, I optioned a book that I'm writing as a pilot for Sony, and soon I will be able to talk about it. There's a couple little legal things that have to be um, ironed out. I'm so excited about it. It's for streaming or cable. Uh, It's such a juicy, it is a little bit high concept. It's one of those things that just isn't on TV and I'm so excited about it. So I really haven't been looking at staffing. I'm very much just wanting to focus on that. I'm in the outline stage. Um, So does that, yeah, so that's why I wanted to go. So I worked with Chuck Lorre, Mark Cherry, and Peter Tolan. And, you know. Not bad. Those were some the, uh, good and bad in all of them, and things I would do and things I would not do. I'm glad I've had that experience now.
0: And have you felt, having been, you know, in TV for quite a while, being a woman in television, have you felt a change? Um...
7: I have to answer that really honestly. So many of my good friends, who are women who climbed the ranks from staff writer to EP have really some stories to tell that I don't, I was the, you know, I, I, I came into television as the creator in the room, even though in the beginning I had a co-show runner. Um, so I can't, I, I escaped a lot of that. Um, if, if you're talking about, you know, sexism and harassment and, you know, um, workplaces that aren't conducive, if that's the type of thing you're talking to. And I know a lot of women who have had those things. I, Hasn't been your experience. I, I you know, I, you know, I came in as the boss or one of the right. bosses. I, uh, that said, having been back in the room since then, everybody I think that I have worked with is very, not everybody. not everybody um two of the three um showrunners that i've worked with are are pretty or maybe one of the three (laughs) are pretty cognizant of that um that said i worry also that there's a chilling effect in comedy rooms that is bad um i believe the whole me too thing the whole me too is a necessary development in our culture, in our profession had to happen. People had to look twice at their behavior. But that said, I do worry. I look forward and I may be pissing off some women saying this. I look, you know, you have to be able to joke and I for whatever reason, my DNA is different. I just always joked right back. That's always been my, whether it's in, in the room as a writer or in life, I've just always given it back. And, you know, and I have had experiences, um, not in a writer's room and in, in, in an interview in a meeting that were not appropriate, but um so for that reason, I'm glad that we have come to where we've come, but I do worry. Um, I do worry. I think all the seminars we have to go to are good. I think we should be able to laugh at them after they're over a little bit though. And I, I, In my experiences, we always do, or most people in the room always do. The person who can't see the humor in it a little bit, I worry about. That's probably really politically incorrect, you've done a lot of these interviews. Has any woman ever said that before? Um, it's
0: yeah, similar things I think it's it's so nuanced yeah. um and that's the truth of it is it really is so nuanced that it's like it is hard to talk about without getting into very specific things you you
7: uh, yeah and, and there's there's a There's a spectrum. And I also worry about the far seriously grotesque criminal end of the spectrum being lumped with the, you know, lesser end of the spectrum or the part of the spectrum that does come from a different time. You can't pretend it wasn't a different time. It was. Yeah. You know, so... Again, I'm glad that it's it is what it is. I think that there's a pendulum, and I'm hoping that it will land to where everybody gets it, and we ha- and we don't have to worry about it so much.
0: Do you think you could that Mrs. Doubtfire could be made today?
7: <laughs> oh, that's such a funny question. So I I'm not involved in the Broadway musical that had to shut down uh, for the pandemic, but I am close to the people involved, and I adore them and I went to the, uh, the previews in Seattle, and I was about to go to the opening night in New York. And, and then, and, and, and through that, I learned through some of the criticism that there are people who say that it's, you know, that it's, I'm so worried to go here. I gotta tell you that, that it's laughing at trans people. And, 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 If anybody who knows me knows I am left of Gandhi and I am, (laughs) you know, I am a walking rainbow flag, but Daniel Hillard was not trans. Daniel Hillard was a straight man who wanted to be with his kids who felt they were being taken away from him. And, um, so it, it, it is strange to me that again, pendulum, Pendulum. I don't want anybody to laugh at trans people. I want trans people to have every, to have love and every right that, and, and to walk this earth in peace and harmony and in happiness. But I do, um, you know, I, I, I do chuckle a little bit at at some of those criticisms, and not all of those groups felt that way. Um, thankfully. Um, there are also people that felt like, you know, Sally Field's character was there's one scene in the movie that the writers of the musical knew and were right to handle differently. And it it is where, and I don't think I even wrote this scene in the movie, but, but where the kids find out that he's, that he's Daniel and one of the kids says, call the cops. He's a he, she. Oh, they don't find out he's Daniel. They find, they don't know he's Daniel yet. They know he's a man. And that it, 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 with the, with the, you know, with the hindsight being 2020 in 2020, that isn't right. And the musical people knew that. And they, they, they went through the whole story. It's very true to the movie. They went through the whole story and were careful to rewrite things like that. Um, but so, but I don't, you know, I feel for both Sally Field's character and Daniel's and Robin's character in that movie. And the reason I wanted to write that movie was because I really have always had, and I've always been proud of the fact that it was a little bit ahead of its time and saying there's all kinds of families, like he says at the end, and some families have two mommies and some families have two daddies and some families have mommies and daddies that don't live together and love is what matters. And that those are the ties that bind. And I'm you know, and, and i'm 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 proud of that, and I don't think that it's laughing at uh, trans people. Um, if Daniel had to put on a gorilla costume to see his kids, then he would have put on a gorilla costume, you know <laughs> right um, yeah. so I don't know the answer to that. I think everybody is is understandably and justifiably looking at all of those types of stories with a magnifying glass and they should be and that's good but you do also have to you know keep in mind the time i so we're talking to somebody about fast times at ridgemont high and holy cow so i went back in love whoa (laughs)
4: <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's rape culture. It's, you know, yeah. that's, that was the movies, the, you know, at the time, you know, yeah. rape culture was acceptable and laughed at and just expected. And yeah, it's, yeah, uh, no.
7: And, you know, but, but I think the
0: mistake is to just feel like, oh, we can't show our kids these movies it's just like no you show them and you talk to them about it and you you discuss these things but it's exactly you, you you can't just hide all of art that was made before you know the me too movement and just say like no it's those are those are important to see and have a historical perspective on but they shouldn't just be tossed out as valueless um
7: yeah yeah, it's funny because the book that uh, the movie is based on was written. It's a children's book. It was written to help kill, uh, help kill, help kids <laughs> go with divorce. But it's much darker than the movie. And Dan, Robin's character in the book, um, fantasizes uh, when the kids are saying things the mom said about him, disparaging things, and he's like serving them tea with bread. He he fantasizes he's cutting the bread and he fantasizes he's cutting her neck. And when he's tying the scarf around the pitcher of lemonade, he fantasizes that <laughs> he's strangling her and and it's dark and funny and I I sometimes laugh when I think about what if the if the movie were like the book. <laughs> <would it> <laughs> but but when you think about it that's what fairy tales do. That's yeah. what your stories do. So again, I probably said lots of politically incorrect things, but I hope I have expressed that I, I am on everybody's side. I really am.
0: It's good to be. It's good to be left of Gandhi because Gandhi, evidently, kind of racist,
7: uh, as it turns <laughs> no. out. Uh, yeah. yeah I, know I have to find a new. I, I yeah. have to find a new person to be left of. That one's yeah. not working anymore.
0: Uh, um. <laughs> So you you said that there was you know sort of a mixed bag or you know the good and bad of having that huge success you know sort of right out of the gate. So obviously we kind of imagine the good. So what's what's the other side of that coin been?
7: Well, <laughs> yeah, I um it's the the, the uh, as everybody in this business knows the odds of that magic happening are so small. Like uh, William Goldman, one of my heroes, nobody knows anything. You know, he he talks in his book Adventures in the Screen Trade about, you know, w- look at this movie. It starred you know Robert Redford and it and and he talks about numerous you know flops where everything was there. When a, when a hit happens like that, it's really magic. I think of it like every single thing that could have gone wrong didn't. And casting, you know, directing, right? It's everything. The editing, there are scenes that are edited out of Mrs. Jalfire that you can find on YouTube that I really miss. And I think they actually would bring it more into 2020 because they, they explore more of Sally Field's arc and there's a scene where I'm sorry, a little tangent here, but where, where the oldest daughter is saying, you're an actor, you pretend, why couldn't you just pretend to be happy? There's a scene where they're finally having it's to me, it's the end of act two. They're having their all in out fight after she's discovered what he's done. And they're vicious to each other. And they're like, I hate you. I hate you too. And they don't know the kids are watching. And the ki- one of the kids says, I hate you both. And that's where they realize the damage that they're doing, both of them. And it's not in the movie. You <laughs> edit it at the end of act two. Like, how does it even, but it's a hit movie. Um, so I think the odds of that happening are are so small. And as, it, you know, I look at my heroes like Jed Apatow who has hit after hit after hit, but he has so much more control. He's he's writing and directing as a writer, I think that, and I've wanted to direct, but it just, it just hasn't happened. Um, I just think the odds of another Mrs. Doubtfire happening are really small. So you're just, you know, you're just, uh, and I've had, you know, several projects, including ghost and Mrs. Muir, um, And a couple of others, including two two original pitches that came so close to getting made with like within inches and a studio had left. Or um, I had a I have had a movie that Paul Feig was going to direct and Reese Witherspoon was going to star in. And I don't remember what, but just so close. So uh, for some reason, maybe those would be easier to Take if it weren't for Mrs. Dowfire, I keep thinking. Well, it happened then, um, and I'm really proud of those scripts, and I love those scripts. And you know, the longer, the more time that goes by where they're not active, the less likely they are to get made. Um, I think, I don't know. I just think psychologically, it's dangerous. It's, it's, it's a letdown when that happens early. It's better for it to happen later on, I think. Right. Um, And people expect you, expect more. You know, I was really, yeah, I was so young and fresh and out of the gate. And um, yeah, I don't know. I'm really grateful for it. Um, And I loved the Broadway musical and I hope everybody gets to see it. It literally was shut down by by the pandemic, even though I get not a piece of it, by the way. Separated rights being what they are.
0: Right. So. No, it is. I, I, uh, when I was just out here beginning, I was working as a assistant to an agent. We represented Elmore Leonard and I was mm. at dinner with him and, uh, you know, I'm like 22 or something and a, a roommate of mine had just had like, a huge screenplay deal at like, you know, same age 22 or something. And, and Dutch Leonard was just like, that's the worst. You know, don't wish for that. He's just like I, you know, he was like an advertising copywriter. He didn't write publish his first book till he was in his forties, I think. And, you know, he had this perspective, like, that's the that's much better, you know, to and you know, but on the other hand, even having that kind of success that you could had with that movie at any point in the career is just so extraordinary that um
7: It often has so little to do with your work. It's really so many magical things happening. Here's the other thing. I never considered myself a family comedy writer. Um, 22 Cent Romance, my first script, is a rom-com. And Adam and Eve on a Raft, which was my second bidding more, you know, original script, before Mrs. Doubtfire, was a rom-com. And Mrs. Doubtfire, to me, was a rom-com in a weird way, even though they don't. Right. Um, Chris Columbus made it and, and I, oh my God, he, he did what he needed to do. He made it more of a family comedy. Um, ultimately the scenes that came out of the movie made it, made it more of a family comedy. They were too heavy. Um, so the other bad thing about Mrs. Doubtfire is I really kind of got pigeonholed into something that to me has never felt like my main wheelhouse that said i do feel like i have a particular skill at fixing uh, family comedies and i've d- and i've done so much of that but creating them from scratch i it's just never been what i thought was my main thing and that's been hard because it was always you know i used to joke if a cause I worked on big mama's house. <laughs> um, I used to joke, if a guy puts on a dress, my phone rings. <laughs> and it was true. I mean, if you think about it, Tooth Fairy is a guy putting on a, a tutu, like, and there were countless others that I, the movies that got made that even um, a movie based on the bestseller, The Nanny, which I turned down, but there are so many nanny or guy puts on a dress, my phone rings, you know, and <laughs> it's an interesting niche. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. And the, uh well, the nanny, you know, the guy puts on a dress niche is drying up. So that it's good right. that you're, think, you yeah. you
7: know, and there's that one guy that does them all himself. So <laughs> what's his name? Right. Tyler Perry. Is Tyler Perry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing about that that makes me nuts is that's what Shakespeare was. Yeah. You know? Every friggin' woman in Shakespeare was a guy in a dress. <laughs> so let's, Like, are we going to pretend that didn't happen? Because women weren't allowed to be actors. Yeah. You know, are we going to pretend that that wasn't part of that?
0: Well, I'm glad that we could, you know, Life After Harley, which is a rom-com, which is in your wheelhouse. There's no guy in a dress and there's no nannies. And uh, I'm glad we could we could revive this and let you hear it after all these years. It was really fun.
7: It was so great to hear it. And to go through it, taking out the Friendster jokes and stuff was fun, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. I'm, I, It was super great for me.
0: Well, thank you for letting us do it. And it was great to talk to you.
7: You too, Andrew. Thank you.
0: That is our show for this month. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-producer Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Findling. So follow us on social media to find out about upcoming shows. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilot Society. Okay, everybody. Uh, this is our last show of this awful year. Uh, 2021 looks like it's gonna be some better days ahead so everyone continue to stay safe out there keep finding a way to help someone this holiday season be nice to yourself keep wearing your masks and we will get through this until 2021 i'm andrew reich thanks so much for listening